brought to you by CGTN Europe. I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to The Agenda. This week on the podcast, we examine what a post-COVID-19 nature-forward global economy might look like, and most importantly, what it might be worth. One of the unintended benefits of the COVID-19 lockdown is that the planet has had a breather for the first time in a long time. Flights have been grounded all around the world and factories have had to stop production, opening up an opportunity to re-examine how our current economic models affect the health of the planet. First on the podcast, we have Akansha Katri, the head of the World Economic Forum's Nature Action Agenda. She's one of the authors of a recent WEF report that says that a greener approach by governments and industries could be worth up to $10 trillion to global GDP. It's indeed true that the report talks about that business as usual is absolutely not viable anymore. Uh, what we are seeing in the COVID era is a clear example of that. But if I look at it purely from a numbers point of view as well, uh, our report and our study has indicated that more than half of the world's GDP is actually moderately or highly dependent on nature. So if businesses and the economic actors do not prioritize nature, it is uh, they're doing it at their own peril. And when you say business as usual, that's quite wide ranging, isn't it? Give us a bit more detail on that. If I were to take an example of actually uh, creating a road or building um, a skyscraper, we only look at the asset which we have created uh, by ourselves, but completely forget the pollution that it may have uh, on the rest of the environment. And that is really business as usual, which completely ignores the environmental impact of its activities uh, and looks at it as externality. And that is no longer viable. You say 395 million jobs could be uh, created. Uh, what kind of jobs are we talking about there? These are new jobs which will be created indeed. Uh, but when we say new jobs, these are also net new jobs. So it is as much about creating new opportunities, but also strengthening the existing jobs and making them more future proof. Uh, food, land and ocean use employs today almost 40% of the global workforce. Uh, however, many of the people who are employed in the agriculture field or even aquaculture field may not be doing it out of the most efficient um, resource use, but may be doing it just because they have been doing this for generations and it's a legacy thing. So a lot of the new jobs will be created in terms of how we grow food in a more organic fashion. How do we grow food in a more regenerative fashion and in a way that is more locally produced? So I think that will be a big chunk of the jobs which will be created. But the second is also when we are moving towards uh, creating more planet compatible urban environment that requires rethinking how we urbanize. So we will need a uh, new thinking and new uh, design elements, so engineers, uh, people who will be working in contract, uh, contractor workers, cement, etc. So these are really new jobs that we are talking about. And the last piece that I also want to increasingly encourage is the point on conservation and restoration. Um, during the COVID stimulus program, there are countries who have used it in a very innovative fashion. So if I think about Pakistan, uh, it really created this green stimulus program where they were able to generate millions 
millions of jobs, giving people uh, both to be able to plant trees, but also to maintain the forest cover. So there are new uh, jobs which will definitely come up in the conservation restoration agenda, uh, which brings people closer to nature. So it seems clear that post-pandemic, there is perhaps a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to improve the global economy through a greener approach. But just who is going to drive that change? Well, joining me now from Nairobi is Inga Anderson, the executive director of the UN Environment Programme. Uh, Inga, where does creating greener economies come in your list of priorities? Oh, it's right up there at the top. Let's think about it. Uh, as you rightly say, once in a lifetime, how often do you see $20 trillion uh, from the public purse being poured into the global economy to jumpstart it and to prevent um, further economic decline. That is not something that we see often and certainly not uh, uh, as frequently as we are now seeing governments making the approval of these stimulus packages. So the question is then whether we're willing to use these funds smartly. So who's going to make that decision? Everyone is going to have to make this decision. And it means that, yes, we need to do the immediate bailouts, cut checks for people who have lost their jobs, the immediate sort of getting money into people's pockets actions. But thereafter come the opportunities of investing. And we are seeing it already. But because when we understand that, you know, half of our GDP relies on the environment in some sense or shape or form, when do we understand that 7 million people die prematurely because of dirty air, when we understand what climate change is bringing to us if we do not take action, we have a real opportunity. We can continue on this grey, uh, dirty investment path or we can flip to green. You have in the past described nature uh, as an asset, natural capital, uh, you've called it. But that asset, when you call it an asset, conjures up something like an advantage for business. And that's a tricky balance for business against the environment, isn't it? Because the priority for business is a balance sheet. Yes, but we need to understand that nature is part and parcel of our everyday life, including business. Uh, and so it's not an either or. Uh, you just can't pollute your way to wealth. Uh, you can't sort of extract, emit and cut down and, and exhaust nature for its plenties and assume that nature will continue uh, giving in the same generous way that it did when you were uh, extracting and emitting. So the truth is, I think that many businesses are realizing that you can, you can, you can overdo uh, too many chemicals into the environment, you will get a bumper harvest, but you need to make sure that you balance what you do to nature. So understanding that, and yes, nature is an asset class, of course it is. It provides the water we drink, the food we eat, the air we breathe, and it provides the very systems that regulate our weather. So let's understand that that asset class has has value. It's not about putting dollar signs on trees and thinking that that's what it is. Well, it's that's what a lot of countries do. It, yes, but it's much broader than something as simplistic as that. It is understanding that each economy is underpinned by a flourishing um, lush nature and our very existence is underpinned by that nature our weather patterns as i said is underpinned by 
huge tropical forests, uh, ocean currents, etc. And having that understanding and therefore that you can't mess with it and assume that harvest will follow harvest and that's, that rains will follow rains. These kind of assumptions we understand now are, cannot be taken for granted. You talk with great enthusiasm, quite rightly, you are after all the UN Environment Programme. Um, but do you have any force, any sway to persuade governments to go greener? Governments that want to look towards the future of their countries are already seeing that these shifts are inevitable. Companies that want to secure um, the earnings of their shareholders in the quarter be beyond the present, looking a little deeper into the future, understanding this. And certainly the next generation of voters are understanding this. My point here is that where you see governments that are deeply steeped in an economy that is based on the current setting. Yes, it is difficult, but it is nearly an inevitable shift that we are having to do. So I'm a realist, but my job is to hold everybody's feet to the fire with science, with knowledge, and with the knowledge that the science is telling a certain thing that policy shifts therefore must follow. Some countries have seen very positive visual uh, environmental impacts in their regions as a result of lockdowns, better air quality, uh, perhaps uh, fewer greenhouse gas emissions, cleaner waters. How can you ensure that this moment in time goes on for a little longer and people don't go back to the old status quo? The fact that people all of a sudden had seen blue skies, I think the fact that the people people all of a sudden have seen wildlife emerge where they didn't know there was wildlife, that they've heard birdsong in the morning as they're drinking their coffee for the first time because they used to hear traffic or whatever these many, many stories that we've heard, I think that that will make people aware that shift is possible. Um, now, um, COVID has also meant that more people are taking their cars and public transport. So we also have to understand that as we begin to emerge from lockdown, we need to retrofit our public uh, infrastructure such that it is considered safe. But having said that, I think the awareness that it is not inevitable that you live in a fog of dirty air, um, that you can actually experience a different type of life and that you can leave that to your children, I think that's fairly significant. Not everyone is convinced that a green future is possible without a complete overhaul of the global economy. One of those is Dr. Jason Hickel, an economic anthropologist and visiting senior fellow at the International Inequalities Institute of the London School of Economics. And uh, he joins me now. Um, Jason, the World Economic Forum suggests uh, a greener approach to commerce could add, they say, $10 trillion to global GDP. Can growth be as green as that, do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's a confused claim, actually. <laughs> um, there's no empirical evidence to, uh, to indicate that, that green growth is possible in the way that some major international institutions are suggesting. Um, now, they're not trained in physical sciences and uh, uh, but the physical science research on this is, is quite compelling, and there's a, there's a consensus on this now. Um, look, we know that we can decouple GDP from emissions. That much is not in question, okay? It's possible to have rising GDP while at the same time a reduction in emissions. The question is, can we do that quickly enough to, stay, to get emissions to zero fast enough to stay within carbon budgets 
or 1.5 or 2 degrees, right? So we know that according to the inter, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we have to um, get emissions globally to zero by 2050. Now, in high-income nations, it's much more difficult than that because um, given the principle of differentiated responsibility, countries that have con um, contributed most to historical emissions um, have to reduce emissions to zero faster than those who have contributed less. So for high-income nations, according to scientists at the Stockholm Environment Institute, they need to be getting to zero by about 2035 or 2030, right? So that's a really tight time frame. Now, the difficulty with growth is that the more you grow, the more energy your economy requires. And the more energy re your economy requires, the more difficult it is to supply that energy with renewable alternatives, right? So that, this is what's happening right now is that um, we're, we're pumping out tons of new renewable energy, but it's all being swamped by additional energy demands due to growth. So the, the key principle here in the physical sciences is that the less energy your economy requires, the easier it is to transition to renewables in a very short period of time. Some of those arguments are built in to the institutions who are saying green growth is in fact possible. And I'm not talking just about the World Economic Forum. I'm also talking about the UN as well. The environment program at the UN is saying, yes, this is all quite feasible. And they've also built in uh, your argument that you would need more energy by saying, in fact, you could utilize greater natural energy, solar energy, wind energy. Yes, we absolutely can create a green economy that has, that has higher employment, um, right, and that delivers flourishing lives for all. That's essential. The key point I'm trying to point out here is that we have to switch from an economy that is dependent on perpetual expansion to an economy that can operate in a steady state with the living world, right? And this is the key thing is that the, uh, the economic system we have right now is one that requires growth at a rate of 3% per year. Now, that doesn't sound like very much. We're used to hearing that. It sounds like a small increments, but 3% growth per year means doubling the size of the, of the economy about every 23 years. Um, so you double it in 23 years and then you quadruple it in the next 23 years and then multiply it by a factor of eight in the next 23 years and so on. I mean, it very quickly gets out of hand. Now, and the key, the key thing to realize here is that we don't need that kind of GDP growth. That doesn't benefit people. It causes ecological harms and it doesn't really benefit people. And the reason it doesn't is because um, of the maldistribution of the yields of growth. Right now, the richest 5% of people in the world capture nearly half of total GDP per year. So think about that. That means half of all of the labor that we do, half of all of the emissions that we emit, half of all of the resources that we extract and produce and consume is done in order to make rich people richer. So the key uh, principle here is that we can accomplish our social goals and deliver flourishing lives for all by sharing what we already have more fairly rather than continuing to plunder the earth for more. And I think that's the key thing here is that in high income nations, you know, like the USA, like, like Britain, more GDP growth is not necessary to deliver our social objectives. So this is an opportunity then, you think, at the moment, because the world economy is not growing and the country's economies are in fact in recession. There's no growth. Well, what we have to realize is that what's happening right now is a recession. And uh, recessions are bad because recessions are what happens when growth-dependent economies stop growing and it causes all sorts of social and financial disaster. And that's what we're, we're seeing right now. The lives of the poor are being hit hardest right now. Um, and that's because our economy is organized around growth. Like it, it can't deliver livelihoods to people without perpetual growth. So what we need to do is organize an economy, a different kind of economy, one that can deliver good livelihoods to people without necessarily needing perpetual growth. 
Um, and I think that this, this crisis creates an opportunity for us to think about that. I think that what people realize in the wake of this crisis is that what we want is we want an economy that is organized around human well-being and ecological stability rather than around elite accumulation. Um, so that's what we have to build, an economy that doesn't require growth um, in order to deliver uh, flourishing lives for all. Is it possible to have, as some are suggesting, a truly circular economy? A circular economy is something that we can achieve, but, um, but in my research, what I've, what I've uh, pointed out with empirical evidence is that it's not possible to achieve it while growing the economy at the same time. Okay, so, so here again, growth uh, comes in con in, into conflict with our ecological objectives and our new economic objectives, okay? So, um, so the demand for perpetual growth means that capital has a need to cheapen uh, resources. It has to find cheaper resources uh, in order to, to fuel that need for surplus accumulation. In a growth-oriented economy, uh, then capital will avoid using recycled resources because they're too expensive. In a post-growth economy where you don't need that constant accumulation, then it's easier for you to shift towards recycled resources. So the more that we recycle, um, the, the, the more that we can abandon the objective of growth as a policy objective in our economies, the easier it is for us to switch towards a circular economy. That brings us to the end of another edition of The Agenda. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.